1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. This is the word of our Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are, so that those who among you who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat food and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please be seated. Let's pray again together. Holy and triune God, as we approach these things as we approach your Lord's table Lord we are standing on holy ground Lord we are standing on holy ground whenever we come to you in prayer whenever we we read your word and, and your word is proclaimed amongst us but Lord the high point of what we do when we come together is receive the Lord's Supper together when we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ together. And so, Lord, we praise you for this table. We, we praise you for the means of grace that it is. Lord, we pray that as we look at these things this morning and next week as well, we, we pray that, that the... the the body of Christ would be first and foremost in our minds that Christ himself would be the one who's worshipped at this table. We pray also, Lord, that you would help us to remember the body of your church. 
Lord, that you would help us to, to not make this just an, an individualistic, personal meal, but, but Lord, a celebration feast that we will celebrate with our brothers and sisters now in this local church in anticipation of that day when we will eat at the, the marriage supper of the Lamb with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, as we consider these things, we, we realize Lord, that no amount of, of preparation, that, that no amount of examination could ever make us worthy of receiving your body and your blood. Yet, Lord, nonetheless, you bid us to prepare. You bid us to examine ourselves. Help us, I pray. Help no one here in our midst to eat and drink judgment on themselves because of celebrating it in an unworthy manner. Lord, I pray that as your word here is proclaimed, as, as, as I and really an, an unworthy servant attempt to communicate these things, I am desperate for the work of your Holy Spirit in my heart and the hearts of your people gathered here this morning. Lord, I pray that there might even be some in our midst who are not yet believers, that they would themselves would turn to Christ in repentance and in faith. Help us all to look to Jesus. Again, not just as individuals, but as one body, as the bride of Christ in this local church. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Now, during the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, having so loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He gave specific instructions to the disciples as how they were to prepare for the Passover meal. They were to go to a certain man in the city and to say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, lay aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and proceeded to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. One by one he wiped their feet. And they came to Peter. And Peter refused. And Jesus said to him, Peter, if, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. And so Peter said, if you're going to wash me, not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. Peter had a sense of his unworthiness before Jesus Christ. And this made him unworthy. Or this made him rather worthy to celebrate because not of his own work, but because of the worthiness of the one who was before him. We know that Jesus even washed the betrayer, Judas's feet. But Jesus knew full well what was in Judas's heart, and he said, not all of you are clean. But then as Jesus 
reclined at the table and they ate together, he explained that one of them would betray him. And each one of them around the table thought it was them. They were sorrowful. One after another, they said, Is it I, Lord? And Jesus said, The one who has dipped his hand in the dish with him would betray him. He said, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And Judas, who betrayed him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. And so Jesus dipped the morsel of bread into the cup and gave it to Jesus, gave it, and rather gave it to Judas and said, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now the disciples still didn't understand that Judas was the betrayer. But after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. And it was night. Judas took bread that night, but Judas did not partake of the Lord's Supper, of that first communion. With the betrayer gone, Jesus now instituted his ordinance, this ordinance, one of two, that the church has celebrated for 2,000 years. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is how Jesus who did nothing without being intentional, chose to spend his last evening with his disciples. He spent it instituting the ordinance that would bring great comfort, not just to the apostles, but to the church throughout the ages and all the way until his return. Love, the church only has two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and it is imperative that we try to get them right. Baptists usually use the term ordinances rather than sacraments because of the error of Roman Catholicism. In the Roman Catholic Church teaches that, that these as sacraments are efficacious. That, that somehow they actually confer grace as, as necessary, as a necessary work for salvation. But we understand that we're saved by faith alone. And so it's, 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 I'm not going to criticize other believers who use the word sacrament, but there is something very significant, I, I believe, about choosing to use the word ordinance because it implies more of a, a symbolic representation of the ministry of Christ. So even if, if sacrament is used, it is, not in, it is not intended by believers to imply that, that either baptism or the Lord's Supper is necessary for salvation. Baptists consistently declare that baptism and the Lord's Supper are symbols and are not necessary for salvation, but they're nonetheless important, a vital part of Christian practice and worship. And I know our, our Presbyterian and Reformed brothers would say the same thing. Now, we do many things that are, are simply part of our tradition, but we need to strive to get as close as possible to the biblical practice.
Some things in the scriptures are quite clear and some things less so. Nonetheless, we need to continually evaluate our practice according to God's word and then make necessary adjustments to grow in our obedience. Now, this has been the practice of Reformed churches for 500 years. This ideology is, is, was, was encapsulated in a Latin term coined by Dutch reformer Jodocus van Lodenstein. Ecclesia, reformata, semper, reformanda, secundum, verbi, dei. Any Latin scholars here? You might be familiar with, with one phrase in there, semper reformanda, always reforming. Translated, this means that, that the church is reformed and is always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. This church is reformed. But this church is always in need of being reformed to be brought into greater obedience, to be brought into, into closer identification with the Word of God. Now this is not about change for the sake of change. This is, a, this is about change in, this is about, about, about change in, in life and in practice. So this is not about doctrinal progressivism, but about personal and corporate piety. Again, it's not about change for the sake of change. It's not a change to adapt to the culture. It's not change to incorporate theological novelty. As Kevin DeYoung explains, that the motto of the Reformation was not forward, but backward. Back to the sources Ad font is another Latin term. We, we want to continually go back to the sources, back to the Word of God, and to reevaluate our practice continually in light of this. So here we are, Providence Baptist Church, reformed, but always being reformed according to the Word of God. So this morning, we're going to ask the question, well, well, what does the Word of God say about Holy Communion? How does the Word of God point to the need of reformation in our practice of the Lord's Supper? How do we need to go back to the sources? Now, I began this, this sermon by consolidating two passages, two key passages that chronicle the events of the, the first Lord's Supper, Matthew 26 and John 13. And, and even though John 13 does not directly speak of the Lord's Supper, it's very clear that this is the same meal that is being celebrated here. This is part of the, the same celebration. The Apostle Paul, coming after the first apostles, was taught this personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in 1 Corinthians, he's now relaying this to the Christian church here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Corinthian church desperately needed this teaching on the Lord's Supper. Providence Baptist Church desperately needs the Lord's teaching on the Lord's Supper. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems. Factionalism, 
unaddressed immorality, internal lawsuits, misuse of the spiritual gifts, but arguably the most serious problem in the Corinthian church was their behavior around the Lord's table. What was supposed to be communion was disunion. When they were coming together, there were divisions among them. Now, they were physically in the same room. But they were miles apart, spiritually and emotionally. Now, the Corinthians didn't come together in a church. The Corinthians were the church. When we come together, we're not coming together in a church. You are the church. The building isn't the church. The Corinthians were supposed to be acting like the church, but they weren't. They didn't come together as a church, but they came together as a bunch of selfish individuals. They were coming together, but they weren't together when they gathered around the Lord's table, so they weren't really eating the Lord's supper. Some ate without waiting for others, devouring all the food so that, that others who came in late couldn't get anything. Others got drunk on communion wine. Again, there was absolutely no union in their communion. And so Paul then asks the Corinthians a series of, of rhetorical questions meant to challenge their thinking and to expose what was happening in their hearts. He says, what? What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is not to fill your belly. You can do that at home. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of what Christ has done for us as a body of believers. And so instead that the... the the Corinthians were spurning the church. They were shaming the poor. Apparently the poor people among them were just getting the scraps. Paul had absolutely nothing positive to say about their behavior here. As Leon Morris points out, the, the wealthier members of the congregation clearly provided most of the food, excuse me, most of the food, and, and this could have been a marvelous expression of, of Christian love and unity, but instead it was degrading to the very opposite. Now this failure it was no small matter. It revealed their lack of love for each other and ultimately revealed their lack of love for God. And brothers and sisters, I am very thankful that we do not have the kinds of problems at Providence Baptist Church that were taking place in the Corinthian church. I trust that our practice requires more, more of a tweaking than a radical overhaul. But the two vital parts of communion that were, were lacking in the Corinthian church, I believe we actually have here in abundance, that we have love for Christ in this church. We have love for one another in this church. But this obviously doesn't mean we've arrived. I, I trust that our series on uh, on the Ten Commandments re revealed that to you and I, I trust that that is very real and present in your heart that you are convicted and that the, 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 the truth of, of that is, is, is being is continually in your minds of, of, of the fact that, that we still need 
We still need to, to semper reformanda. And that too. So as we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34, I, I want to highlight the, the foundational ingredients of the Lord's Supper, celebration, how our hearts need to be reformed. We're also going to see the rationale for, for reforming our practice to, the, to be coming to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And we'll be looking at, at other ways that we're going to be looking at, at reforming our practice. And so my key points are, are drawn largely from this passage, but I'm going to deal with them in a, in a different order. This, this week, I want to deal with, with preparation and examination. And then next week, at commemoration, celebration, and anticipation. Now, I really regret that, that I can't get, all, get through all of this in one, in one week. It would, we'd, be here for, we'd be here until 1 o'clock. The Koreans would be joining us if I was to try to get through all of this. And, and I regret it because I, I really want to make sure that we don't stop with, with preparation and examination because if that's where you stop, then, 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 it's, it, then, it, then I failed. Because like I said in my prayer, no amount of, of preparation, no amount of, of examination could ever make you worthy to receive the, these, these elements no amount of, of preparation or anticipation could ever make you worthy to come before Christ. We are all desperately unworthy. And part of this preparation and, and examinations is to remind yourself of the fact that you're unworthy. So you will come to the table with humility. So you will come to the table with understanding your need. Understanding that, that the gospel is not just something that you did back there that day when you were first saved. Understanding that the gospel is something that you need every day, that you need today every bit as much as you did on that first day. So then, let's look at, at the preparation. The preparation for the Lord's Supper. In order to receive the Lord's Supper rightly, you must prepare yourself. Knowing that the Lord has prepared a feast for you, you would, you would come by His grace with an appetite. Again, it is, it, it, you're, you're not worthy, but you still need to prepare. You, you don't just show up for this. There's some, what we're doing here is vitally important. And so you prepare yourself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 33 and 34, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. But the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, I would love to hear Paul's other directions on this, but, but we trust in the sufficiency of Scripture. We have preserved for us here what we need to know. So one part of, Paul, of what Paul is speaking here is, is, is directions here to, to wait for one another, to consider one another. And if, if you're hungry, eat at home. But the appetite that you need to approach the Lord's table with is, is not primarily physical. It is spiritual. You need to come with a spiritual appetite. Now, now that would obviously in, of, include avoiding gluttony at the table. 
It, it, it's, this, is, this is part of our Lord's Supper celebration. It's, it's to remember fully what is, what is happening here. But, but this, this is one of the reasons why we believe that our fellowship meal that we have in the, in, in the gymnasium after this is part of our fellowship meal. The, the meal here is, is not just, just, a little, just a little morsel of, of bread and a, and a little cup. It's part of a larger feast. These emblems are, are there to, to they're, they're a, a, a vital part of that feast, the, the main part of that feast. But again, this preparation means the intentional consideration of your weaknesses and of the needs of others. And part of that would then mean avoiding going, rushing to the dessert table to, to stack up all the best desserts without considering your, your brothers and sisters. That, that's part of, of what is involved in that, that larger fellowship meal. Parents, it means teaching your children from a, from a young age to having a, having a loving attitude towards others when it comes to food. You have to come prepared with a spiritual appetite. You must carefully consider how momentous this celebration is. How much of a blessing and a privilege it is. You must take intentional steps to come to the table prepared. You know, I use the illustration for the, the, the children of a birthday party. But if you are invited to Buckingham Palace to, to share a meal with Queen Elizabeth, you wouldn't just show up without any forethought. You would prepare your clothes carefully the evening before. If you were to bring dessert, dessert for the Queen, you'd prepare something special beforehand so that it was, it was all ready to go so you wouldn't need to, to rush around the next morning. You'd make sure that you went to bed at a decent time so that you had enough sleep. You, you'd make sure you got up early to, to get ready. You'd examine yourself carefully in the mirror to make sure that your clothes are neat. Men, you would shave or, or neatly trim your beard. Women, you'd make sure your, your hair was arranged. You'd make sure you left early in order to make it there on time. Now, if you would do that for a meal with the queen, how much more when you're celebrating the supper of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. During my sermon on the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath, I spoke to you about preparing for the Lord's day the evening before. When you call to mind the fact that you are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper on the Lord's day, your inspiration for preparation grows. And so if you're going to prepare yourself rightly to, to, to receive the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day, your, your preparation needs to start the evening before. Now you watch and the, the clocks in your homes turn over to the next day at midnight. But in the Bible, the evening and the morning were the first day. The next day started is at sunset. Now, I'm not advocating here reprogramming your clock or changing the calendar, but I am advocating reordering your priorities. You need to start your preparations for the Lord's Day celebration of the Lord's Supper the evening before. You need to look in the mirror, not just to prepare externally your outside, but your inside. You need to prepare not 
primarily your, your clothing, but your heart. Your heart. And part of this process is, is certainly examination, but, but I want to focus here first on what takes place prior to coming together as a church on the Lord's Day. When you understand that you're going to be coming together to the, to the Lord's table, you would come with a heart that is eager to honor the Lord. You would come with a heart full of love for Christ and love for your brothers and sisters. You would come with a humble heart knowing that in and of yourself you don't deserve to be there. You would come with a faith-filled heart, single-mindedly focused on Christ and all that he has accomplished for you in his life and his death and his resurrection. You would come with a repentant heart, a heart that is turned away from sin and turned towards Christ. You would come with a praying heart, knowing full well that you can't conjure any of these things up in your heart yourself, but you are dependent completely on the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You'll also want to help your family to prepare, especially through prayer, but in, in practical ways as well, reminding them of what's coming tomorrow, reminding them of, of how important and how special it is. You'll pray not just for, for your own heart, but for their hearts too, for your spouse and for your children and for your church family, especially, especially for those who have needs that you're aware of. And if you're not aware of the needs of others, well, that should be a signal to you that you need to be more involved in the life of the body. Pray for the children and for any other unbelievers who might be unattending. Pray for me as I preach the word. Pray for those who sing and pray and, and for the offering. Pray that it would all, would all be part of, of a preparation of the heart for what's coming. Now, beloved, don't you want that kind of anticipation? That kind of celebration every week. Why would you only want to do it once a month? Now some might say that, that, that to do it weekly will make it less special. Now at first that sounds plausible. But just think about this. Do you take that approach to the other means of grace? Would you, would you say that it's, it's ever, well, you just pray too much? Or you just read the Bible too much? Is it, is it, too, is it ever too often to receive the Lord's Supper? Now, now, I'm not saying this to be critical of other churches. It, it, it's, it's each, each, each church needs to determine how they, they want to proceed with this, but we believe our best practice is to do this when we come together on the Lord's Day. We believe that's the pattern that was, was there in the, in the early church. And I'll get into, more into this next week. There was the pattern that has really taken place for, for much of church history. But when we understand that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is central to what we do when the church comes together on the Lord's Day, it doesn't become less special. It becomes more special. And you're going to want to do everything that you can to prepare. So that's preparation. Now let's, let's look at examination. Let's begin with, to focus on the type of examination that, that Paul speaks of specifically in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32. He says that, that those who, who eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And he says in verse 29, 
for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what is Paul talking about here when he talks about a failure to discern the body? Well, some commentators suggest that Paul is dealing with those who do not consider Christ when they partake with, those who are not saved. And others suggest that he is referring to those who, who don't consider the body of the church. And I think th that they're, they're both true. We'll see in a moment, I believe it's actually the second, that, that Paul is, is more talking here about a failure to discern the body of the church. But there is application here as well, that you need to, not, you need to consider the body of Christ. You need to be saved when you receive the Lord's Supper. We need to, to do both kinds of examination. You need to examine yourself to make sure you are truly saved. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6 says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or you do not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Many eat and drink, eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, but have no part in the body and blood of Christ. Many people receive the Lord's Supper, but are not Christians. Now we need to be very careful here. Some think, that they are saved when they're, when they're not. And this is a very real and lethal problem. And for those people, there's one solution. Repent and turn to Christ. But there are others who are truly saved, but lack assurance of salvation. If you're wondering whether you are truly saved, you should be very wary of doing this apart from the body of Christ, doing this apart from the church. We are notoriously bad judges of ourselves. Again, some people think that they're saved when they're not. They are very capable of convincing themselves of that most dangerous lie. Others think that they're not saved when they are. Don't try to figure this out on your own. The local church can help you. Now, we don't give you assurance. That is not our job. It's the Holy Spirit who gives assurance. But we can help you by asking you biblical questions to help you come to an accurate understanding of the reality of your salvation. I just quickly want to touch on several possible reasons that people lack assurance. Here's some of the most common. One, well, you aren't saved. I've already addressed that one. Two, you are saved but have bad doctrine or bad understanding of the promises of God or, or bad understanding thinking that you can lose your salvation. Three, you are saved, but are walking in willful sin that has caused the Holy Spirit to withdraw assurance of salvation. That's very common. Four, you are saved, but the Lord wants to do a deeper work in your heart, causing you to press more deeply into Him. And five, 
you are saved but have been neglecting the means of grace such as the word, prayer, fellowship, baptism, and the Lord's table. Now there are others, but those are five of the most common reasons why people lack assurance of salvation. But I want us to focus here on the fifth one. The ordinances of the church. Baptism and the Lord's table are ways to help give you assurance of salvation. This quickly with baptism. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but listen, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now Peter here is not saying that you're actually saved by baptism. He's saying that, that it, it is a means of grace. That, that you can actually, remember, I was baptized. I have publicly declared my union with Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. Ephesians, uh, Romans 6, 3 to 5. Well, the Lord's Supper, Supper is very similar. Christian, do you doubt your salvation? The Lord's Supper is a means of grace for you to help provide you with assurance of salvation. Maybe you've sinned presumptuously. So did David. So did Peter. Repent and receive. Maybe you feel so weak in your soul that you're afraid to come to the table. The table is for the weak. Medicine isn't for those who are healthy, but for those who are sick. And we all struggle with some spiritual illness, whether we realize it or not. The, the, maybe your, your heart feels cold and empty. Well, the table is a place for your heart to be warmed and filled. Can you see how helpful it is to do this practice, to, do, to, to come to the Lord's table every Lord's day? Why would you want to wait until the first Sunday of the month if you're struggling with those things? So yes, we need to examine ourselves to, to, to make sure that, that we are, are truly part of Christ. We need to make sure that we are, are conscious of the body and blood of Christ. We're, we're focusing on, on Him as the sole source and means of our salvation. But we also need to examine ourselves in our relationship to the body, to the, the body of believers, the brothers and sisters. And again, I believe that that is Paul's primary point here. After all, that's the context, isn't it? The, the Corinthians were selfishly approaching the table. They were being gluttonous and, and drunkards at the Lord's table. And so, so Paul says that they weren't considering the body of the church. Well, another clue that this is what Paul is talking about is in the fact that Paul only here says without discerning the body that he doesn't in this part, in this point in verse 29, doesn't directly mention the blood. If you remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 17, sorry, 16 and 17 where, where Paul refers to the, the body of, of the Christ, body of Christ as the church in the same way. He says the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, it is, not, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Therefore, there is one bread, we who are many, and one body, for we all partake of one bread. So we gather together as one body. 
And this should be reflected in the way that we treat one another. And not just in the way that we treat one another around the table, but in the way that we treat one another all the time. It's not just about, about avoiding selfishness, but it's also about not walking in bitterness and unforgiveness. It's about seeking to, to be made right with those who you've offended. In, in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, I don't think this is, this is applying this too broadly. Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, if it's true that you need to first reconcile to your brother before giving an offering, how much more before approaching the Lord's table? But there's going to be people who, who refuse to be reconciled. Well, in that case, Romans 12, 18, if it is possible so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So, so if somebody is, is unwilling to forgive you, that should not hinder you from approach, approaching the Lord's table. But again, this kind of behavior is, is, is not just for the church at the table. It's, it's for the church all the time. It's to examine yourself and say, what has my behavior been like? Is there, there anything outstanding in these areas? Those who walk in, in unforgiveness will face the discipline of the church in hopes that they're going to repent of their unforgiveness for the glory of God. Divisiveness is very serious. It spreads through the church like a root of bitterness. Defiling many. It's, it's like gangrene. It causes whole limbs to be amputated. And the one who does not discern the body in this way drinks judgment on him or herself. David Garland says the divisions in Corinth that Paul mentions in 11.19 reveal a deeper, far more serious divide. The divide is between those who incarnate the cross of Christ with their self-sacrifice and those who put Christ to death again with their self-centered feasting. Are you self-centeredly approaching the Lord's table? The failure to love brothers and sisters at the table meant that the Corinthians were eating and drinking judgment on themselves Providence Baptist Church, may this not be true of any of us. This actually got some of the Corinthians killed. Verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. God actually killed people. Killed them. For failing to consider the body of the church around the Lord's table. Judge yourself so that you don't come under God's judgment. Now, it might sound really harsh for, for God to, to kill people for taking the Lord's Supper wrongly, but look at, at 1 Corinthians 11.32. It's, it's actually mercy. When the Lord judges you for taking the Lord's Supper wrongly, He disciplines you so that you are not condemned with the world. This is discipline. This isn't punishment. Now, the word that's translated discipline means to provide instruction, to educate. If you are a Christian, your punishment is put on Christ. In Hebrews 12, the, the writer explains that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines his children. Now, the Lord's discipline is not fun, but if you survive it, 
It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 11. So you can see that these are two things you need to be doing. You need to examine yourself to see whether you are truly a Christian in the context of the local body. And you also need to, to examine yourself to make sure that you are doing this conscious of the local body. So you, you can see how serious a matter the Lord's table is. You can see how essential it is that you examine yourself before partaking. Well, another part of, of the examination of your heart, one that Paul doesn't deal with directly here, is through the proclamation of God's word. My duty as a pastor is to exegete the text, to, to rightly discern the, the meaning of the text. But I can't stop there. I also need to exegete the hearts of the people. I need to consider how, how this word intersects with you, how this word applies to, to you, and not just to you, first and foremost, to me. And chances are, if there's, and, and I, if it's not every week, it is virtually every week that I come, before I ever come to proclaim the word, I've been under heavy conviction over, over something in this text. And chances are, if, it's, if, if I'm feeling it, if it applies to me in that way, I'm not the only one. But I need to think about the various needs in the body to think, okay, how does, how does this passage apply to us? And then how can I communicate this so that, so, so that we can all understand what God's Word is saying to us? Confident that it is the Holy Spirit who will actually then bring the Word to bear. I can do what I can to, to help you to, to understand. Again, I'm relying on the Holy Spirit for that too. But, but as far as really bringing it home, it's the Holy Spirit that does that. I'm confident that, that He does this. I'm, I'm very aware of, of many incidences where this has taken place. People come to me after services to, to talk to me about, about issues of sin that the Holy Spirit has brought to bear in their lives through the context of the proclaimed Word. Now, I don't know all that's happening in the hearts of, these, of, of, of this body, but the Holy Spirit does. And I'm, again, I'm confident of His work. Even if I don't bring up something directly, I'm confident that He is able, as the Word is proclaimed, to, to make that powerful in the hearts of His people. That the Holy Spirit is going to use the preached Word to bring conviction. And you need to be an active participant in this in actively examining your heart as the word is being proclaimed. Exegeting your own heart, not the heart of the person sitting next to you or across the aisle. Because to the extent that you're thinking about somebody else under this, you're not thinking about yourself. And we all need to think about how the word comes to bear in our own lives. So then with the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Examine your own heart. And then, with your heart laid bare, apply the healing balm of the Lord's Supper. That this is the crescendo of our Lord's day 
service. When, when I preach the word, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, seeking to, I'm seeking to prepare the way through the power of the Holy Spirit for this. This is the, the primary thing that we do as the church gathers together. And I trust that by God's grace, and, and even now, the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, maybe bringing areas of conviction. Trust that he's exposing things in your heart so that you can come to him repentant. Come to him realizing, yes, your unworthiness, but realizing Christ's worthiness. Anticipation of the Lord's Supper arises with the proclamation of the word. Awareness of the need of the gospel arises with proclamation of the word. And then we come to the table together. Thomas Watson declares, the word of God is a looking glass, a mirror to show us our spots. And the blood of Christ is a fountain to wash them away. Zechariah 13.1. Now, of course, in, in Christ is proclaimed in the word as well. And Watson says this, he says, the, the word is a trumpet to proclaim Christ. He says the, the sacrament is a mirror to represent him. He says the word brings us to Christ and the table builds us up in him. So then the supper is a visible sermon. Again, next week I'm going to focus on the, the commemoration, the celebration and the anticipation that is involved in the Lord's Supper. But, but I can't finish without at least touching on these things here. Because again, no amount of preparation or examination will ever make you worthy to receive the things that, these, that this bread and this, this cup represent. You will never be worthy. It's only the worthiness of Christ. It's only the, the perfect life of Christ who was completely devoted to his father who, who loved his, his God with all of his heart, his soul, his mind and strength. With, with every moment throughout all of eternity. And in his incarnation, he continued to do that. He, he continued to, to love his neighbor as, as, as himself. You know as well as I do that not one of us has ever done this. We have never fulfilled any of God's commandments, to, to any degree whatsoever. We are desperate for Christ to understand that, that He lived the righteous life always, that we have lived never. We understand when, when we approach these things, when we, when we take up that bread, we remember the body of Christ. Yes, we remember the, the physical pain that he suffered in his crucifixion, but we remember that that is not the primary pain that Christ suffered. Remember that the, the ultimate pain that, that Christ suffered was that, that the Father poured out his wrath on his Son in our place. Remember that, that in his body he received the, 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 the incarnate Christ, God the Son, had the Father's wrath poured out on him. So this bread and this, this cup 
are a, a visual, a visible representation of the body and the blood of Christ. Not just of his physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering that he suffered in your place and in my place. And it's also an anticipation because he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is an anticipation of, of, of what's to come. Like I said to the kids, this is an appetizer for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so when we receive the Lord's Supper, we're, we're at the same time, we're, we're looking backwards to what Christ has done. We're looking in the present to see what, what we are in Christ now, and we're looking ahead to the future, to that moment when we'll celebrate with Him for all eternity. And that's something that I want to do as often as possible. That's something that, that I want to do when we come together as a people on the Lord's day. I want to remember all of this. I want to, to raise our worship up. I want to help raise our eyes to Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace that he has given us. Yes, through the proclamation of his word, but I would argue that even more importantly, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, So this is a very special Sunday. Every Sunday is a very, very special Sunday, but, but this is history in the life of Providence Baptist Church taking place here this morning. This is the first time, to my knowledge, in the, the history of this local church that the church has, has done this on any day besides the first day of the week. So you are here as something representing, yes, this is, this is something that, that we are doing, but this is a, a small part. This is our small part in, in the place of the large history, of redemption history, of what Christ has done for his church, what he is doing for his church, and what he will do for his church. And so Joshua is going to come up here in a second, and, and we're going to, to celebrate this together. But again, this is not just, please, don't just leave this at the, at the place of, of morbid introspection. This is not a funeral. This is a celebration. This is a celebration of all that Christ has proclaimed, or all that Christ has, has accomplished for us. When Roman Catholics gather to take the Mass, they, they think that they're crucifying the Lord Jesus every every time they take the Mass. When Christ said, it is finished, He's accomplished everything that you need for your salvation. And these emblems are a reminder of that fact. So brothers and sisters, I beseech you to come with repentant and faith-filled hearts to receive these emblems. But if you are here this morning as an unbeliever as, or as, as somebody who is, is not considering the body of Christ, whether, whether it's the body of Christ in salvation, whether it's the, the body of Christ of one another, if you have, have outstanding issues that you are unwilling to deal with between your brothers and sisters, then let that cup pass by. Do not eat and drink judgment on yourself. But rather... Repent. 
The same answer, whether you are here as an unbeliever or as a believer, repent and turn to Christ in faith and receive and celebrate all that Christ has accomplished for us. So brother, would you please come and let's celebrate together.